Jesus didn't play nice with the religious order of his day. The religious movers and shakers of his time, the Pharisees and Sadducees, constantly felt threatened by who he claimed to be. The authority by which Jesus taught and performed miracles came from a source that they couldn't control, and that absolutely drove them crazy. Matthew's Gospel records an interesting set of interactions these religious leaders had with Jesus during the week of Passover in Matthew 22. A team of skillful debaters and experts in Jewish theology and law brought a series of questions to Jesus to see what his response would be. But these questions weren't really asked in hopes of knowing truth. They were just attempts to trap Jesus into saying something unlawful or blasphemous. But Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and responded to each question with such authority and insight that it left them silent and stunned. Of course he did. He's Jesus. He's the one who gave the law to Moses. After Jesus had absolutely owned the debate team that asked him about taxes, Matthew twenty-two seventeen, and verbally spanked the debate team that asked him about the resurrection, Matthew twenty-two twenty-eight, a third team of legal experts stepped forward, probably quite timidly, I might add, to ask him about the Jewish law. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. As you read Matthew's account, you can almost feel the tension and anticipation in the room. The top theologians and scholars of the Jewish faith have just asked Jesus the big one, the question of all questions. The most actively debated question in the rabbinic world was, what is the greatest commandment? When we consider the fact that the Pharisees viewed the law as 365 negative and 248 positive commandments, we realize how complicated of a question this could become. Even the most learned and masterful rabbis spent years grappling with this question. Legal experts would divide the hundreds of Jewish commandments into heavy, or important, and light, or unimportant, categories and spend countless hours debating which ones were which. Jesus' response? Simple. Love God with everything you have. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Matthew 22, 37-38. Matthew doesn't record the Pharisees' reaction, but I can imagine it was one of shock and amazement. Jesus drew his simple, yet incredibly profound answer from the most memorized and quoted passage in all Jewish scripture, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. This was also referred to as the Shema, and it was a sacred profession of the Jewish faith. The Shema was also a declaration of complete loyalty to the study of the Jewish scriptures, the Torah. More than anything else, though, the Shema was a declaration of allegiance to Yahweh himself. Jesus cut through the heart and intent behind all 365 negative and 248 positive commandments of the Old Testament and declared what God was truly after. According to Jesus, the most important thing God requires from his people is a heart of allegiance that is completely and totally devoted to him. So simple, but so all-encompassing. Jesus said that the most important commandment of God is for his people to love him. But true love, according to the Bible, is not simply an emotion or feeling. True love is a decision of the will to act in light of a deep, abiding affection for the object of our commitment. We're to show this kind of love to God with all of our heart, all of our passions, desires, 
and affections, all of our soul, the inner, immaterial part of ourselves. And we're to love God with all of our mind, our imagination, intellect, and our commitment to learning and growing and thinking about all of reality as God wants us to think. See, you can follow some rules without loving God. You can follow rules without having any desire in your heart to honor God. But God wants so much more from you than just outward conformity to a set of religious standards. You can follow some rules without loving God, but you can't truly love God without a sincere commitment to follow His commandments. Love must always be the basis for our obedience and commitment. Love must be the basis for our allegiance. And allegiance is the proper response from a man who truly wants to honor God. Welcome to the Committed Masculinity Podcast, a limited series that explores the issues and challenges facing Christian men who are serious about Jesus' invitation to be a disciple. On each episode of our series, we will review the content of each chapter of the book, Committed, Biblical Masculinity, and then discuss the issues on each episode with special guests. On today's episode, Chapter 3, Pledge Your Allegiance, Halfway Hearts, Faithful Obedience, and the most satanic song in existence with special guest, David Young. Pledging allegiance. Allegiance is the practice of loyalty or devotion to a person, group, or cause. If you're from the U.S., Growing up in school, you most likely said the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag. But I'll bet you didn't use the word allegiance in many other contexts. But that doesn't mean you're not familiar with the idea of allegiance. We all are. We were created for it. There exists in the heart of every man a desire to devote his life to a cause bigger than himself. To be willing to sacrifice, fight, and stand together with others in the cause of promoting and defending things that are true noble, right, and honorable. It's this kind of devotion that has led to the establishment of nations and the overthrow of corruption. Allegiance has led men throughout human history to do battle for freedom, defend the honor of their king, and sacrifice their very lives for what they felt was right, noble, true, and just. But there's also a dark side of allegiance. Insurgency, military combatants, cult leaders, and fringe political groups all require unquestioning allegiance from their followers. Allegiance has led men throughout history to commit atrocities, genocides, assassinations, and all manner of evil for causes, ideologies, and despots. Many of those who have committed these evils might have even believed in the moment they were somehow justified in their actions. But, to be honest, most men in the modern world have lost touch with this principle. The modern man doesn't tend to think in terms of allegiance to any cause, idea, or leader. A lot of us as men have fooled ourselves into thinking that we are autonomous, independent, individualistic freethinkers who haven't given, and never will give, allegiance to anyone other than ourselves. I am the captain of my ship, the maker of my own destiny, we say to ourselves. 
But this simply means we are victims of the greatest and oldest lie of all time. You're going to have to serve somebody. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to meet a filmmaker whose work I'd followed for years. Over the past few decades, he'd studied culture, the arts, and popular music to examine the worldviews represented in them. One of his areas of expertise is the occult, Satanism, and its influence on popular music. Seriously. Over lunch, my curiosity got the better of me, and I asked him a question I've been dying to ask for years. What is the most satanic song out there in popular music? My first thought was that he'd pick a song by some obscure, openly devil-worshipping black metal artist from Norway or Sweden, but he didn't even bat an eye. It's easy, he said. My Way by Frank Sinatra. That's the single most satanic song in the history of popular music. I almost choked on my sandwich. He went on to explain to me that observers of Satanism don't actually worship any god or deity, despite their names. Satanists actually worship themselves. In fact, one of their phrases, no redeemer liveth, indicates that each member is their own redeemer, sovereign over their own lives and actions. The high priest of the Church of Satan, Peter H. Gilmore, summed up satanic belief by saying, what Satanists essentially believe is that life should be lived in the pursuit of pleasures, and we only get one chance to do it. Sounds like America to us. I did it my way would make a perfect anthem for practicing Satanists. The greatest and oldest lie of all time is that freedom can be found in living for self. Satan has an entire unbelieving world enslaved, completely allegiant, devoted, and ferociously loyal to him and the ideas and practices of his kingdom of darkness. But the tragedy of it all is that they have no idea that they're actually serving him. They think they're simply worshiping and serving themselves. But in this great cosmic battle between darkness and light, good and evil, and right and wrong, there can be no neutral parties. Either we will serve and belong to Christ, or we will serve and belong to Satan. Either darkness or light will have our allegiance. And according to the great philosopher Robert Zimmerman, you're going to have to serve somebody. A sobering thought. The Bible makes it exceptionally clear that we were in bad shape before we met Jesus, or without Jesus. We might have seemed successful or even moderately happy with our lives, but the truth is, we were spiritually dead, enslaved to the world, our flesh, Satan, and under the wrath of God, Ephesians 2, 1-3. But when Jesus enters our heart and lives, we're saved from God's wrath by grace, made alive, and raised up and seated with Christ, Ephesians 2, 4-9. Even if we didn't know it, we once belonged to Satan, but now we're under new ownership, we're Christ's. We owe him a debt of gratitude we could never pay back in 10,000 lifetimes. And yet, we still so often choose to live only for ourselves. It's a sobering thought to think that even after experiencing such radical grace and deliverance, we can still choose to live like slaves to Satan. When we live primarily for self, not surrendering, worshiping, or devoting ourselves completely to God in total allegiance, even as Christians, Our lives can be about serving the purposes of our old master, the devil. I wonder how many of us as Christian men have spent years of our lives willingly in bondage to Satan without even realizing it. 
Halfway heart disease, we'll call it HHD for short, is a serious spiritual condition that I've been affected by many times in my Christian life. You might have had a case of it before as well. The halfway heart is a heart that has at some point truly experienced God's grace, forgiveness, love, and mercy. This is the heart that does love God, but most of the time wants just enough of God to get something out of God. This is the man who loves what God can do for him, but truthfully, doesn't love God. Deep down, his heart is still deeply in love with self, the world, and his sin. This is the guy who trusted God once upon a time for salvation, but can't seem to trust him enough to get accountability and help from his pastor for his struggling marriage and online porn habit. Truthfully, he likes his sin. He hates how it makes him feel, but he loves it too much to bring it to God and get healing. This is the guy who once saw God do a miracle in providing for him financially, but struggles now trusting him to give back anything financially to his church or those in need. If he were honest with himself, he just doesn't care all that much about God's work or others' needs. He knows he's living for himself, but he's got a million excuses and justifications. Truthfully, he doesn't really care about changing. He loves himself. This is a man with a divided allegiance and a halfway heart. The book of James calls this kind of man double-minded and unstable in all his ways, James 1, 8. Towing the line by trying to serve two masters, whether it's God and self, God and money, God and our sexual sin, God and our video game addiction, God and whatever else, is a spiritual impossibility. We have to pick one. Our allegiance can't be halfway. We will either commit ourselves to loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, or we won't. It's either all or nothing. The just shall live by faith. If you're beating yourself up right now, stop. Let's talk. The truth is that none of us are capable of perfectly loving God with all that we have. As long as we exist in this broken body of sin, we'll battle against divided affections and stubborn self-centeredness. Our flesh will continually try to pull us away from our allegiance to Christ. The world's systems and all of its mindsets and ideologies will perpetually attempt to sway us from our commitment to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. In this journey of following Jesus, we'll struggle against sin. We'll do battle against selfishness. And we'll fall victim to pride. Our affections will be divided between God and his kingdom, the things of this world, and our own selfish desires. Thank God. We're not saved by our own righteousness and religious works. If that was the case, we'd all end up in hell. We're saved, forgiven, and redeemed because of our faith in Christ. He's the only one human being who has ever loved God perfectly with all of his heart, soul, and mind. We are made right with God simply because of our faith in Christ. But what does saving faith in Christ look like? Is it simply believing a set of facts? believing in the law of gravity or electricity? Or is it something more? In Romans 1, Paul the Apostle speaks to a group of Christians about the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done to save sinners. In so doing, he uses a very interesting phrase to describe saving faith. He tells this church that he and the other apostles have received grace and a commission to bring about the obedience of faith to the nations. Verse 5. The word he uses for faith is the Greek word pistis, and it more directly translates as faithfulness, 
trust, or even allegiance. The idea is that responding to the gospel with saving faith is to obey it. It's to trust completely in the idea that Jesus truly is the King of kings, Lord of lords, and he alone is worthy of our trust and faith. It's the simultaneous action of letting go of our sin and grabbing hold of Jesus. A Jesus follower who has truly put their faith in Jesus has committed themselves fully to allegiance in Jesus as the Savior and as the King. Someone who has true saving faith in Jesus has trusted him with their entire lives, not just certain parts of it. Obedience and faith are not two separate ideas. They are always connected. Unbelief and a lack of true saving faith in Jesus as Lord certainly could be expressed through words, but most often that's not how it works. Most often it's expressed through perpetual disobedience, compromise, indifference, taking the promise of salvation for granted, and giving lip service to God while going through religious motions without our heart truly belonging to Him. But please hear me. The evidence of this kind of real, saving faith is committed endurance, not perfection. It's the commitment to continually follow after God and obey His Word with everything we've got, even after we've royally blown it. It's the deep-seated desire to do God's will and everything God wants for us, even as we do battle against our sin, selfishness, and pride. It's our undying allegiance to Jesus as King, even as we fight against all the imposter kings who seek to dethrone his lordship in our lives. The man after God's own heart. Twice in the scripture, Acts 13, 22, 1 Samuel 13, 14, David is described as a man after God's own heart. And yet, in the life of David, we discover sin, pride, failure, adultery, and even murder. If you've ever felt like your sins are too big for God to forgive, look at the life of David. This dude was a screw-up. So how in the world could this big of a screw-up ever be considered a man after God's heart? The answer is found in David's allegiant faith displayed throughout the course of his life. Regardless of his failures and setbacks, David was committed to God. David had complete trust in God's power, even as the mighty warriors of Israel didn't, 1 Samuel 17. David loved God's word and committed himself to knowing it, delighting in it, and meditating upon it day and night, Psalm 119, 47-48. David was committed to trusting God's plan for his life, even when that plan involved suffering, setbacks, and heartache, 1 Samuel 24. David worshipped and thanked God in every season of his life, both the good and the bad. Psalm 26, Psalm 100. But more than anything, David's faith was displayed by what happened after his failure. Listen to his words in Psalm 51, after he was confronted for his sins of adultery and murder. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me from my guilt, purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. Psalm 51, 1-4 David knew God's holiness, justice, and righteous law, but he also knew God's faithfulness, grace, 
mercy, and loving kindness. David's sin was horrible, but he owned it. He was humble, he was repentant, and his faith was displayed in how he threw himself into the arms of God's sovereign grace and repentant surrender. When I was a kid, we'd go to the beach. My brother and I loved playing in the waves. We could play for hours body surfing on the waves. My parents were too cheap for body boards, so body surfing had to do. If you could catch a wave just right, you could get shot out like a rocket back to the beach. But you had to catch the wave just right. Sometimes you'd be in a bad spot, and a wave would start to break over you. If you tried to swim away from it, the wave would slap against your back and knock you into the sand. The only way to really recover from a bad wave was to face the wave and dive over it until the next one came. See, it seems counterintuitive sometimes to run towards the thing that it feels like we should be running away from. It's in our nature to want to run from those we hurt. It's counterintuitive to think about running back to the one we've hurt in order to have our own hurts alleviated and our hearts restored. That makes about as much sense as diving into the wave that looks like it's going to knock you down. But one of the greatest tests to see if we really believe the gospel, that God loves us, forgives us, and wants to restore us through his grace that he perfectly displayed through the cross of Christ, is to watch what we do with our failures. Do we run to God, or do we run away from God? The freedom of everything. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself the question, what does God want from me? As a child growing up in a strict fundamentalist church, I thought the answer to that question was to never say a cuss word, to never drink, to never smoke, to never listen to rock music, to never touch a girl I wasn't married to, and to never grow my hair long. Sadly, I think many of us never grow out of forming our own list of what we think God wants from us. Our list may not involve only reading a King James version of the Bible and never wearing shorts, but they may involve other external behavioral modifications that are just as silly and just as spiritually impotent. Even after truly meeting Jesus and growing in my faith, the question of what God wanted from me still haunted me. It wasn't until years later at a Bible study one night that the light bulb came on. I asked that question to my small group just to see what their response may be. What does God want from us? Nobody spoke at first. Some silently sipped coffee while others stared at their shoes, hoping somebody else would speak first. Then finally, a woman named Megan piped up. Everything. God wants everything from us. But also, I think God wants everything for us. This sounds embarrassing, but I never thought about it like that. That God simply wanted all of me. More than my religion. More than my rule following. He wanted me. My heart. My mind. My soul. Everything. But I certainly never considered the idea that God desired everything for me, that his plans for me were good, to give me hope and future, that in Jesus God had given me forgiveness, salvation, access to him as the Father, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the promise of an eternal kingdom that cannot be shaken. God's plan for me is more than I can ever ask, think, or imagine. Everything. So often we pledge our allegiance to unworthy kings and causes. We align or attach ourselves to such pointless and temporary pursuits in order to gain recognition, financial affluence, or praise. But all of this is so incredibly narrow and nearsighted. 
Those of us who have put our faith and allegiance in King Jesus have the promise of ruling and reigning with him in a kingdom that cannot be shaken for all eternity. So why do we chase after such tiny, temporary, little visions of affluence, applause, and pleasure? What, or a better question is, who have we devoted our lives to? Where does our allegiance lie? There is great freedom in waving the white flag of surrender to the King of all kings. There is a tremendous amount of freedom in the simplicity of letting that surrender be total, complete, and absolute. Young. So, David, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm good. Thank you. So, introduce yourself. Tell our listeners a little bit about you. Uh, you've been on podcasts with me before, and you and I are friends, but uh, tell listeners a little bit about yourself and what you're about. Yeah. So, I've uh, been a pastor for, man, over 40 years now, or just, just around 40 years. Always wanted to be a pastor my whole life. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I lived most of my life in Middle Tennessee. I've also lived in several other places, Missouri, Kansas, and other places. And I've worked for this church for 25 years. And it's just a, I can't even describe the blessing it's been to have that longevity with one group of people. Um, mm. A happy, happy ministry, happy group of people at church. I love my church. And there you mm. go. That's who I am. <laughs> I'm defined by my church because we're just in love with each other. <laughs> That is awesome. It's encouraging to to guys like me getting started in this thing called ministry. So, well, I reached out to you, David, because uh, number one, you're a good friend, but number two, uh, your writing has had a big impact on me. And the book you wrote that I really enjoyed and thought about as I was writing this chapter is called King Jesus and the Beauty of Obedience-Based Discipleship. And so you talked in it about surrendering to the authority of King Jesus and embracing the mission of King Jesus. And and so, um, you know, I wrote about allegiant faith and, and, and that idea. Um, do you think that sometimes this idea of surrendering to Jesus as King maybe gets lost on us as a uh, 21st century Westerners? And, and why is that so important to see Jesus as King? Yeah, it does get lost on us for a lot of reasons. One of them is who wants to surrender? I mean, it's not instinctive mm-hmm. to surrender and, in fact, we, you know, we want to be victorious. We want to conquer things. And that's actually human. It's a male impulse. It's not a bad impulse. It's a, it can be a very health, healthy one. And then we come to Jesus and, you know, his, what he says is, I, I now I want you to deny yourself. I just want you to die. And mm-hmm. it's really counterintuitive to let go and just die. And, and yet that's really what faith in the New Testament means up. Uh, you're probably familiar with, I think you and I have even bumped into it once or twice, Matthew Bates, who I yeah. remember where Matthew teaches. But Matthew makes a whole argument in a couple of different books that the word faith in the New Testament, it, during that culture, the word faith actually was more aligned with what we would think of when we think of the word allegiance. Mm. Uh, but for us, faith is kind of more um, trust. Yeah, and it is. That's a true statement. 
maybe belief or just, you know, this is kind of a guiding conviction of mine. But I do think Bates is onto something that in the New Testament to put your faith in somebody was to mean that you were now from that point forward loyal. You were one of their soldiers. So if you think about like in the Roman world, the Roman world was run on a patronage system almost exclusively. You didn't have a standing police force. You had a patron. So if, for example, mm-hmm. someone wronged me, I went to the guy who was my patron, who usually was a wealthier guy down the road, and I asked for him to redress it. And he would be my judge, my police force. And if he had to go to his patron to get something resolved, he would. But in exchange for that, when he had a problem, I had to be on his team. I was I had to be part of his loyal following. And that's actually called faith in the in, in the Greco-Roman world. Pistis, which is the word translated faith in, in our New Testament, would have described that kind of patronage relationship, meaning that, you know, I've sworn loyalty to Jesus. And in return, you know, he's the guy who co- covers me and takes care of me. And it's a mm. symbiotic relationship. If I don't do my part, he can't be the patron he wants to be. And if he's not the good patron that he wants to be, I'm going to be looking for somebody else. So you know, yeah. it's just not instinctive to to want to surrender. I don't it's just not, it's not for any of us instinct to right. surrender. And we probably haven't done that concept any favors in the American church by almost separating obedience and faith and making them into two different ideas. Yeah, you're right. That's a, that's a real unfortunate thing that we, that we've driven such a wedge between the two and there are historic reasons why that emerged. But, um, you know, in, in the scripture, faith is just, it's just a, Faith just sort of naturally works itself out in obedience. And I don't, yeah. you know, you have James talk about it some. Paul talks about it. I think Paul may be addressing something slightly different. But their goal is to bring the two together, not to separate the two. Sure. You know, I think there are a lot of men in our churches who would identify themselves as Christians, maybe because of an intellectual belief or a cultural understanding or or maybe even a cultural attachment. But Truthfully, um, there are other things that have their primary loyalty and allegiance. So you, you've been doing this pastor thing for a long time. What, what are some of the things maybe you've noticed competing for our allegiance as uh, men within the church? Well, as you and I were discussing before we started, I've been diagnosed now with stage four renal cancer. And um, it was, it's been a real eye opener to me about myself. When I first got my diagnosis, which came out of the clear blue sky, I realized that um, that I, like probably a lot of other people, really enjoyed having one foot in the Jesus camp and then always keeping another foot in, in my world to do the stuff I wanted to do and mm-hmm. t- kind of straddle the fence. That way, if the Jesus stuff didn't work out too well, I still had all my fun stuff. But in the event that Jesus turns out to be who he says, I'm, I'm, I'm close enough to him that I'll probably catch some of that as well. It's been a real eye opener. And to answer your question, I think that I think I had had a divided loyalty. So I haven't been unloyal exactly, although probably divided loyalty is a form of unloyalty, disloyalty. Mm. But it, it's just that I always wanted to hold on to my my stuff. Like, you know, I, I still want to be in charge. I still want. I've got all these things I want to do, and I just hope mm. that Jesus will, you know, leave me at least a couple hours left at the end of every day where I can do what I want to do instead of what sure. he wants to do. So it's a divided loyalty that I think is hard for a lot of us. We really do want to do the right thing. We want to follow Jesus, 
but we just also want to do our thing and we just hope he'll be okay with that. Whether I think for a lot of men, you know, that the drive to, for success and your, whatever your career is, that interest in, in, you know, always sort of being ahead of the game, uh, you know, money, the big three for men are always sex, money, and power. And I think there's Mm. some truth to that, that, you know, you want to be the powerful guy. We, we men are pretty fragile on the inside. We like to be affirmed. We like that power. Uh, and we do, we pursue money and, you know, for men, for most men, sex is a constant struggle, the struggle to be holy on the inside and, and holy in our practices. Yeah. Uh, But in each case, those three are forms of self-assertion that prevent us from being, from surrendering to Jesus. Sure. So one of the things that I'm, I'm sure you've probably noticed too, and again, I think we have our culture and us as pastors in the American church in a broad sense to thank for it. But I think there's a lot of us that genuinely try to use God to get what it is that we want. And so we would say that we're allegiant to Jesus, at least in our verbal confession or our cultural alignment. But the truth is deep in our heart of hearts, what we're doing is to our shame, maybe trying to use God to get what it is we want from him. Um, have you noticed that too? Is that, is that something maybe you've seen as well? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. In fact, the matter is I've, as a working assumption, I've assumed a lot of us are that way. I've started to refine that view through the years. Again, a lot of it looking at my own self, Mm -hmm. I've started to think maybe I wasn't using God to get what I want when I was in my divided loyalties, as much as I just wanted sort of insurance against a worst case scenario. God was one form of insurance Mm -hmm. for me that I was going to try to be a good guy because I think it's important to be a good guy. And I also wanted that insurance that, you know, if all things failed, I had a God on my side who could help me out. But but meanwhile, I was still going to try to live my life my way. And, um, you know, I just hope that his will was close enough to mine that he didn't notice a difference. But Mm -hmm. I do think for a lot of us, there is um, the interest in, you know, I want to do what God wants me to do, but I I sure hope he wants me to do what I want to do. That's what I'm really (laughs) going to do. Yeah, that's a form of disloyalty that I'm a lot more compassionate to it now than I used to be because I see it in myself and I think, wow, it's a form of weakness. It's a form of rebellion, but for a lot of us, it's a form of weakness. And I will say that as the years go by, God seems to get more and more of me and I seem a lot more eager to surrender. And maybe Hmm. some of it's a growing process. I, I try to be compassionate when I say it that way, that. Sure. One way or the other got, you know, again, with this diagnosis, my feet got kicked out from under me and I have zero control over what's going to happen to me now. Suddenly mm-hmm. it's like, OK, I guess I will depend on him because I don't have anything left to depend on. And that's yeah. a blessing from God. So it may be that he, he has to teach us that or we have to have our feet kicked out from under us. We have to grow into it. But, yeah. Do you think some of it has? I mean, I, I've totally seen that in my life when I was at my lowest that's when I realized, man, all these other, all these other causes, all these other kings, all these other, you know, little G gods, they're not worthy of my allegiance. They, they can't do anything for me, right? They, they're not able to provide for me, protect me to satisfy my soul. There's only one that's ever been able to do that. And his name is Jesus. Um, But do you also think that, you know, delighting in the Lord and discovering the character of Jesus as we trust him, that leads us to greater trust in him? 
Oh yeah. Uh, so we, we love the things we find to be beautiful. That's kind mm-hmm. of, the, that's the bottom line. You love that, which you find to be attractive, that which you find to be beautiful. And the more that we see the beauty of Jesus, the one reason why I use that word in the title of my book was I wanted people to see the beauty of obedience. Um, mm-hmm. I think, in fact, I preached a series similar to that book and the starting illustration of the sermon was from one of the a dog kennel shows out uh, one of the competitions where this, this, um, probably an Australian sheepdog, I don't remember, but is running the um, the obstacle course. And on the one hand, you would think, you know, what a terrible thing to make a dog do this. But you realize how happy that dog was to find <laughs> purpose and meaning. I mean, you know, it, it just made the dog so happy. That was the happiest dog you've ever seen. And I was just thinking, well, when you actually see that Jesus's way is really beautiful, it's hard, but it's beautiful. Look at the results of forgiveness, the result of of unfettered love, the results of faithfulness to a wife, the results of children who adore you because you were a good father to them. That's so beautiful that when you see it, 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 it you fall in love with it and you want more of it. And, and um, so I do think that there's, it comes with it, the, 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 the uh, appreciating the beauty, the joy of the Lord hmm. helps us to surrender to him. Yeah, absolutely. So if, Somebody listening to this would would say, hey, um, I can identify that there are some parts of my life where I have a wrongly placed allegiance. How would they go about correcting that and fixing that? Well, um, you know, I do think that the Bible, the simple biblical principles that we've taught for years that go all the way back to Scripture, they don't change. You know, repentance is 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 waking up one day and saying, I don't have to be this way if I don't want to. And so mm-hmm. repentance is a good start just to say, okay, I'm going to start a new chapter. This is the, this is it. And I don't know how to do it. Oftentimes we don't know how to do it. So we just start by talking to the Lord. Tell me what you want me to do. Open my eyes up to what you're up to. And in that sort of those simple prayers, God begins to reveal himself to us. And then a submissive willingness to walk into whatever he opens up in front of us. And to choose to do that, which is right, when we have a choice, he, he begins to reveal himself. The journey becomes richer. We become more sure of ourselves. We learn that trusting him was worth it because he really will provide. He really will take care of us. I mean, say those, even those basic, simple steps. Um, you know, sometimes I think uh, you don't, we just don't need a lot of new stuff. The old stuff worked great. The biblical stuff worked great. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, has, has brought so many people into the kingdom of God. So I'll kind of start with those biblical principles of I'm going to start a new chapter. And it's a journey. Yeah. Well, and I think some for some of us, we hear the word repentance and we're thinking like, you know, go with a whip and, you know, whip ourselves. And, you know, there's got to be tears and there's nothing wrong with crying tears of repentance. That's a good thing. But really... The word for repentance is the the metanoia, the, the change. In right? your mind, yeah. I think about the um, prodigal son who, you know, that the little sweet phrase in there when it says, as he was in the pigsty, that he came to his senses. That's the best word for repentance mm-hmm. in the Bible. It's just coming to your senses. This isn't working. Yeah. I mean, you think about it. If you really ask, a lot of men aren't that happy. A lot of us men, we are not that happy. Got a lot mm-hmm. going for us, but we're just not that happy inside. And so maybe a good thing to do is ask yourself the question, you know, how's it how's it going when you're in charge? Is it the way you want it to be? Wow. And if it's not, then come to your senses and, you know, take a chance on on Jesus's style. Let, 
put him in charge and see what he does. Um, yeah. I remember reading one time, and I don't know if it's true, maybe just one of those fables that comes out of the fog of war, but when the Japanese were surrendering to the General MacArthur in 1945, at the end of World War II, I'm told, they get on the battleship, I, I don't remember which one, I think Missouri, but whichever one, they get on the battleship, the delegation of Japanese come in, MacArthur has the terms of surrender written in Japanese. He sets it in front of them. They start to read it. This is the story I've heard. As they began to read it, he said, there's no reason to read it. Just sign it. And what he was saying <laughs> is, you know, you're going to surrender no matter what. You might as well just right, right, sign right. that thing. And then I thought about that as a model for Jesus that, you know, what? don't wait till you have everything figured out before you trust him. Just trust him. And he'll show you as you go along. He'll teach you as you walk along. The, the terms of surrender will come to you. But if you want to mm. follow him, just go on and start surrendering and let him be in charge. See where he takes you. Wow. I love that. Um, so somebody listening to this might be asking themselves, okay, so faith is allegiance, which is commitment, which is loyalty, which is a whole life commitment to Jesus. I think that's where I'm at, but maybe I'm not sure. How can we tell, right, without becoming neurotics for Jesus, where we're just sitting there, you know, oh, my gosh, am I fully committed? Am I not? Are there obvious telltale signs that maybe we're not as committed and we're not as allegiant as maybe we think that we are? Um, I've discovered in my life that sometimes there's a discrepancy between what I really am feeling and what I'm actually doing. So I mm. go through, I mean, I do all the stuff you would think that a pastor does. I do it every day because that's what I am. That's who I am and all that sort of stuff. But there are times that, that my feelings aren't really there. And when I look inside, I think um, I've been through periods of ministry where I was kind of hollow on the inside. And um, so I would say that how, you know, you're, whether you're going to church or not may not be all that good of a measurement. Um, and whether you're doing some of the Christian routines, I do think maybe a good measurement is, has to do with are you when you make difficult decisions that you know are right and you feel the pain of it are you grateful to the lord then that that's a good mm -hmm. thing. okay you know i um when i've had difficulties in relationship my wife wouldn't mind me telling you that we've had tough times in our marriage sure and when i did what i thought was right in marriage and didn't like to it and didn't want to do it and resented having to do it. But then was able to remind myself, you know, that this is when I'm most like Jesus. And I felt mm -hmm. a, a sense of gratitude. I think that's, that was like one of the tests that says, okay, I, this is, this is who I am. This is who I want to be. And, yeah. um, I'm, and I'm pretty satisfied with that. Can you take joy in, in going to church? Do you take joy in, do you take joy in those religious actions that you do or you don't, are you only doing them? And if you're not finding joy in it, well, join the human race. We probably all go through those periods, but you need to find what is the joy? What is it that he really wants me to get out of this? Um, hmm. Because there is joy to be found in all of Absolutely. it. It's just we may have stopped looking for the joy or we've listened to the lies of the evil one. Um, so maybe taking joy out of the things that relate to Jesus will be the best sign that you're, hmm. that you're allegiant to him. Yeah. So allegiance and commitment to Jesus as king doesn't mean we're perfect. No, not at all. But how does a man who is surrendered to Jesus as king and has that allegiant faith, how, how does that show up in how we handle 
failure and sin? I think that we are able to, it's a matter of perspective. When you're really loyal to Jesus, you, you really do have this sense that he's leading me. Then you can take failure. It's not catastrophic for you. You can take disappointment. You can understand that God's hand is at work in this. Um, even, you know, in my case, even with a, a cancer diagnosis, that's, uh, you know, I mean, it's not a good diagnosis in my case. Stage four renal cancer is, it's pretty serious. And I've tried to ask myself the question, how do I take joy in that? And how do I look for the leadership of the Lord in that? And, and he's shown me ways that, you know, just a simple way is that I get to walk a journey with my church that none of us have had to walk before. They've not had a minister who's this ill. And we all get mm-hmm. to figure this out together and we get to build a tighter community. And I've actually noticed that I love them more than I ever have. And I think mm-hmm. they love me now more than they ever have. And we're just like, I see all the blessings in this. And I have, it's not even begrudging, but it's like, oh my goodness, I couldn't have gotten these blessings any other way. And I think I'm going to be able to say it, it's worth it. I think I'm going to be able to. So look for, look for what he's offering, even in the, even in the disappointments, look for what he's giving us. And, mm. and um, normally when we look, we find, but if we look yeah. for it, we'll find it. Wow. Yeah. So if there's a guy listening to this, you know, that would look at his faith life, would look at his commitment to Jesus and just say, man, I am nowhere close to where I need to be. And I want to start devoting my life to Jesus as King. Um, I've been on offense. I've been kind of a halfway uh, disciple or, or whatever else. What, what would you say to a guy like that listening to this? Well, I'd say you're in a great place. I'd start by saying, man, you're in a really good place. You're, you're, I don't want to sound harsh to say that you're the prodigal son, but you're, you are where the prodigal son was. The best mm-hmm. moment in the prodigal son's life was the moment he came to his senses. And he just said, I don't have to live like this. And so he's in a pigsty, his father's wealthy. He says, I can go back and I can even be a servant. I can just work for my dad. I know I've squandered everything, but I don't have to live like this. And so he turns and he goes back. And as he goes back, the father appears. I mean, the way the story's told, Jesus doesn't say these words, but it sounds almost like every day the father went out on the edge of the hill and looked to see, is this the day my son's coming back? And when he sees him, he runs and he wraps his arms around him and all. So I'd just say you're at the perfect spot now for turning a new page, for starting a new chapter by coming to your senses and saying, I don't want it to be like this. It's a walk. We can give ourselves mercy and grace and say, it's a walk. It's a journey. I'm at the first step and I'm not where I'm going to be, but I'm no longer where I used to be. You can start there Mm -hmm. and see what God does with that. And I often tell people, start small to end big. You know, I don't know how much you fast. I've I, off and on through the years, I've done a lot of fasting and prayer. And um, when I used to fast, it was like, okay, if I could just get through one meal without eating, it was a great thing. And, um, you know, I had gotten to the point where, well, well Jesus teaches not to brag, but that, where I could fast for long periods of time, but I didn't start. That yeah. You start sure. to end big. So it's okay to start small. It's okay to say, I don't know what to do, but I can do this and yeah. then build on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, David, man, thank you so much for your wisdom and for your insight. I always enjoy our conversations together and uh, really appreciate you, man. Thanks for being here. Sure. God bless you. God bless the book. Uh, I'm excited about it. Congratulations. Yeah. Well, it's actually, it's dedicated to you because you were the one that <laughs> goaded me to writing it. So thanks for uh, <laughs> well, I'll do it. You. 
Thanks for listening to the Committed Masculinity Podcast. If you like what you've heard and you want more, head over to Amazon and pick up your copy of the book, Committed, Biblical Masculinity. Please give this podcast a share, leave us a review, and tune in next time. Thanks again for listening.